What is up, Asymmetry? Ah, geez. We circled back with Chris Baker. We didn't want to let too much time elapse between part one and part two because Chris was saying things that resonated with me and where Mariah is headed, and and we needed to crystallize these thoughts. Uh, another fantastic conversation, exceeded expectation. I'm I'm always so incredibly optimistic when I meet people and speak with people in institutions, you know, that have the common goal and motivation of continuing to progress the conversation. And I think there's something really fantastic happening at the Chicago Botanical Gardens, and they have a good one in Chris Baker, advancing and utilizing the power of the tiny tree to magnify uh, the voice and context of the native environment. Um, you're going to like this. The, there is a shameless plug for work in this. I'm just going to warn you, but it comes from the perspective of feeling like it's a responsibility to continue to utilize bonsai to progress the discussion of how we continue to protect and conserve uh, the ancient trees of these very special ecosystems that have a massive impact on us all. And uh, to know that I've got a partner in Chris Baker that uh, shares the same motivations. Uh, there's power in numbers and I I sense the bonsai community is just starting to amass the kind of understanding and knowledge that's going to allow us to have a very big impact for many, many positive things uh, to come in the future. Sit back, relax, and enjoy, everybody. So hopefully, you know, it's the last time that I hit some unknown freaking, I mean, totally random, like we marked out all the utilities, we located everything. And just like digging in the middle of like an open stretch of ground, just hit like a massive water pipe and it exploded and turned into a geyser of problems. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's exhilarating. It's also like never, at <laughs> this. Never a dull moment. Yeah. Well, when I was when I was first doing it and I would like you know, hit something or I would run like a utility and then I, I would have to come back over that utility to build something else. Cause like when you're creating this kind of infrastructure in the beginning, I had no idea how to like organize it. Right. Uh, so I would generally have to come back in and do something very complicated over a utility I had already installed. Cause I didn't think about it very clearly in the beginning. Uh, then I would break the utility that I myself had installed and then I'd have to fix it. And then, you know, and then finish doing what I was doing. So that, that was like a very familiar experience, but like digging around the old utilities for this house, it's like, I, I honestly couldn't tell you where the electrical line for the house is, uh, where all of the internet lines are. So now we're sort of bypassing. I didn't know where the original water lines were. I found those, uh, yesterday. Nice. So yeah, you know, <laughs> now, now we're, now we're free and clear of mystery. Now you know. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. The last thing you want to find is a gas line. That's the doozy. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Even electrical can't be fun. Sparks. And yeah. Things. Yeah. We we had we had a moment where I had the utility company up here to trench power to the like the mothership here, which is like where our studio is that we film and photographs, where the workshop is. It's where our packing facility is. It's where the team operates out of the mothership. And the utility dude was standing by the transformer and he had his locate devices. He had located everything and he said, put your, tr put your, uh, you know, your trenching blade in right here. And I dropped it and it, it, the, I hit an electrical line that they didn't locate. That was a high voltage line and it arced and exploded. 
my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm literally like, I'm not kidding you. He and I were both very lucky we didn't die because I was right. sitting on this machine made of metal when I hit like a super high voltage, not not like a power line, but I hit like the line going into the transformer, which is carrying wow. a lot of electricity. Yeah. And so that like blew out the entire electrical grid here at Mirai. And uh, it was like a 90 plus degree day. And all of my facility is powered off electrical to run the well pumps for our water. Mm. So the only reason that every tree here didn't die that day was because I collect 3,000 gallons of rainwater on a continuum off of the, the roofs. And they're at the top of the property so that I could gravity feed them should I ever lose power. And so I hand watered everything off of gravity fed rainwater that day. It was a total nightmare. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But at least you had a, at least you had a plan. Well, a backup plan. Try, yeah. I, I try to have like double or triple redundancy. Yeah. So that was like, that was like the experience where I was like, oh, let's invest in a generator, you know? And then like, right, right. That plus losing power in the greenhouse on like one of the very first cold fronts I experienced here and recognizing the Pacific Northwest kind of is a crazy place to, to live and grow bonsai. Yeah. That's a Chicago. Is it? Yeah. What's the, what, what kind of like facility, like what's the Chicago Botanical Gardens facility? I'm assuming that you guys have a lot of stop gaps for total meltdown in the winter. Yes, there are. Well, and, and, um, you know, we have generator and actually one time last year, um, they were, they were rerouting a bunch of stuff for construction purposes. And we wound up using, um, in the tropical house, I wound up using one of those like bullet torches, the, the, kerosene run ones for a, per a period of time during the day because they had they they knowingly were doing it but they they turned everything off so we had we kind of had a plan um and if it would have gone overnight it would have been we didn't really at that point like for overnight i probably would have just had to take everything like into the studio and just put them on tables and stuff because you can't really run those too long because it builds up gas in the in the environment and right. so um so yeah, so we, we kind of realized like hey, we we really do need to have a little bit better of a of a plan there. But the but the facility itself is, you know, is, is pretty much brand new, and so it's got a lot of things that um, can help kind of redirect. And we've got the generator that runs off of the one building now, so we can generate some power that way. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, we had a greenhouse heater one time that got a uh, like a minute little fly that flew into the propane um, emitter that exists right before the, the heater sort of sparks the propane. So this fly flew into it and then its body got turned. And as the propane would apply pressure, the fly would, would block the propane so the heater wouldn't fire. And what? yeah. And so like I'm on the phone to like the utility company because I'm thinking it's like the pressure moderator on the propane tank and they like send a dude out and it was like, a day or two before Christmas, it was like 22 degrees out. You know, I've got all my redwoods and like coastal oaks in there. And I'm like, oh my God, these trees are, oh, holy shit, they're going to die. You know, and like the guy's like, look, there's nothing wrong with like our, our, our propane, like pressure moderator gauge. And he even like put a new one on there and still. So then I'm like calling the company and they have like an emergency line. And then the guy's like, you know, sometimes 
you can get a fly inside of that propane line. And so like we took, I took the entire heater apart, like this massive, you know, greenhouse heater in this little tiny compartment. I like pulled it out and like, he like showed me how to open the housing, like via like a iPhone, you know, FaceTime. And there's this little fly right inside of it. Just like he said, it was like, it, it just like made me realize how effortlessly things can go wrong. You know? Right, it's like, right. dang it. That's... Think of one in a bajillion chance. Although oh. he knew about it, so it's like it happened. I How guess. Happened? Yeah, oh, I man. guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy. You weren't the first. Uh, apparently not. I don't it, like the obscurity of that, though, to be like maybe right. a minute fly because it's a tiny little hole to begin with. Let's like, right. you know, he's like maybe a fly. And what would attract it to go in there? The smell of the gas or something? I don't like, know. Why would a fly do that? I don't know. I have no idea. I guess like, you know, the same reason that people crawl in caves, like here's a small dark <laughs> hole in like a, you know, hillside, like what's in there? Yeah. I maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I'm a little claustrophobic, so that wouldn't, I'd run into that. I'm totally claustrophobic. Yeah. Yeah. I had a next door neighbor who had an older brother who used to uh, zip us up into sleeping bags and like push us down the stairs. And that really changed me for, for life. <laughs> yeah. It's a terrible, it's terrible memory. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Anyways, I had to cut out of our conversation. I'm going to, I'm going to change the subject now, but, uh, I had to cut out of our conversation early last time, uh, for unfortunate reasons, right as we were getting ramped up and you were talking about, um, just sort of this like monstrosity of potential, that you saw in bonsai and I think you were even working with people and I want to say people that maybe had some, I don't want to say mental health issues, but like you saw like the therapeutic value of bonsai. You maybe even saw the uh, reformative capacity of bonsai. You saw the capacity for bonsai to help people understand their capacity to maybe move towards conservation or sustainability. And like, when you started talking like that, like my, my ears perked up because this is like at the very basic foundation of what Mirai has grown to do over time. Right. Like in the beginning, yeah. it was about the vanity of bonsai for sure. Like I knew bonsai, even when I was a kid and I saw bonsai, like there was something about it that it's like, well, I can dedicate my life to that because there's so much there and there's going to be something, you know, that justifies the effort. Like at a very young age, I recognized I needed more than just the the coolness of it, you know, and yeah. going through my apprenticeship, I was like, well, there, there better be something <laughs> you know, like that. Not like there yeah. needs to, there better be something more than this or else this is not going to be uh, the greatest yeah. life choice that I've made. So yeah. I'm curious like how you came to that because your, your journey to like being a curator was like really fascinating to hear, but like, that's a still, that's a very big step from, okay, now I'm, now I'm a bonsai professional on a curatorial perspective to I see bonsai having the capacity to leave the world better than we found it. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I, I, since our, since our conversation, I've actually been thinking about a little bit more and actually taken some steps towards doing a little bit more with it. I, I think that I, I started to think about, 
you know, when I, you know, again, my previous career, I was a veterinary technician for, you know, for nearly 20 years. And a, a lot of that was with zoo type animals and that sort of thing. And so there was always this, again, that just to kind of reiterate that that idea of using these animals as ambassadors and, and, and connecting with the ecosystem that they come from. And oftentimes, of course, there's, you know, problems in those ecosystems, whether it's caused by climate change or something else. And also, I, I felt like at the end of the day, all of my years being a veterinary technician, I've had this great sense of purpose and like that I was doing something good. At the end of the day, I helped decrease the morbidity and mortality of the animals I was caring for. And that, and that was a big part of why I did it. I loved that feeling of purpose, I guess. And since becoming, since changing over to horticulture and, and being in horticulture now for, you know, almost as long, that the, at the end of the day there, I, I felt like that was missing. Like, I love what I do. There's nothing else in the world I'd rather be doing. But it, it you know, again, so just for the idea of people looking at it and liking it or not liking it or having public displays or working with individuals or teaching students, I get a, I get a good sense of purpose from teaching and I get a good feeling when I, you know, we, I teach classes through the garden and sometimes I work with people or go to clubs and that sort of thing. And I like that because I like that we're teaching people, but it's still about just kind of this art form and horticulture. And so when, when the horticultural therapy group at the garden approached me about working with them, and that's when we started working with, um, you know, children, we were working with older people that had had, you know, dementia, that sort of thing. But then the focus came a, a little bit on some of these veteran groups. And, um, and that's the thing that's been reoccurring. We actually have a workshop coming up in about two weeks. And so that was like, all of a sudden, I felt like, hey, this is, I like this, right? Because now we're helping people. Again, I think Bonsai is cathartic. I think the, you know, the focus and the attention to detail and the thoughtfulness of the work is really beneficial to people who are, who could be struggling. Um, also the sense of this, you know, success is in the process, success is in the daily process of doing everything you need to do each day and continuously building off of that. And, you know, the process of developing a tree is much like the process of developing yourself, let's say. And so that all kind of came about by accident. They just brought that to me and I was just on board with it. And then started thinking about more, okay, what other possibilities are there? And I've seen some of the stuff you've done with the Mariah in the Wild and, and um, seeing other collections that are focusing. We've been really, again, looking for an identity, looking for kind of a branding of what the Chicago Botanic Bonsai Collection could be or it should be. And um, so this idea of, you know, connecting more with native species, but then why? Just because we're using native species, they're easier to grow. Like, And then thinking about, okay, well, you know, if we're, you know, thinking North America versus just regionally. And then this idea that, okay, well, there's, there's opportunities to connect and take bonsai outside of the realm, like um, of just, again, the artistic portion of it. Um, I love the idea of like taking bonsai outside of the horticultural realm in general, um, like displaying at museums and stuff like they did in Asheville with their bonsai as fine art. Like, I think that's really cool. It's still artistic, right? It's still, um, for this idea of beauty, but it takes it outside of that realm and connects people. So I'm kind of looking for two things. I'm looking to connect people that would maybe otherwise not 
have much of an interest in bonsai, which the garden is a great place to do that because most of the people that come there are not, you know, coming exactly for the bonsai. They're coming for the garden as a whole, right? For you, everyone that comes there is like coming for bonsai or professionals. Like they're coming there because the interest is there already. Mm -hmm. And they're looking to take that to another level. I have the unique opportunity of exposing people that otherwise maybe are not that interested. And then how do we connect them? And so finding something and now conservation has been uh, something that is important to me and my wife. And we're very active in our local community with native plantings and working with the health of our lake and being involved with all of that stuff. And so it just was something that kind of seemed like, Hey, there's an opportunity here. There's an opportunity to use these trees, like a zoo animal, make them ambassadors for not only just a tree species, but the, the broader concept of the ecosystem that may be struggling. And, um, you know, just we're, how can we do that? How can we tie that? How can we make that a part of what the Chicago Botanic Garden does? And so, um, so okay. I, I, at this point, it's in its infancy. You know, I've, I've actually talked to my boss about it since our conversation. He's, he's super supportive of all the stuff that I want to do. And so he's a, totally on board and started drafting a white paper and coming up with some, you know, ideas of how not not only what this would look like, but how do we start achieving it, you know, tying into local, um, whether it's like through the, you know, the local county forest preserves, or is it through private entities, or is it, you know, how, how do we connect and collaborate with other organizations to then create these models of this ecosystem and use those to go to events or take them place, you know, take this trade landscape or something to someplace and have it be a part of, you know, some event or something that brings light to some situation that's going on in the environment. Like, I just, I feel like that's there. It's like, it's pretty, you know, and just because, you know, just because a species is, is in peril in its native environment doesn't mean it's not available at a local nursery, right? A lot of things are cultivated because they grow well. So getting, you know, sourcing the material, of course, is going to be one of the primary things. Like, and looking within, like how many native species do we already have at the Chicago Botanic Garden that are coming from environments that we could already pick out? So some of our mountain collected species, certainly like the Colorado collected species, they've got the beetle issues and Nessus Park and like all that stuff, like our limber pine is, you know, could be a perfect starting point for that. It's already has um, a, a fair amount of notoriety in our area. And, you know, we could use that. Like, how, how do we then just take that and use it? Certainly thinking more nationally, but acting more locally as well. I'm going to so just kind of, yeah, let me, let, let, let me rock out here for a minute because this is, this is something I've been thinking about for a long time that I'm going to, uh, un unfortunately you, you've, you've opened the can of worms and we're not going to be able to put them back in because, you know, I've talked with Aaron Packard at PBM and, and these institutions, the national collection in DC, the, the Arboretum in Carolina, uh, the Chicago Botanical Gardens, uh, the Denver Botanical Gardens, the Huntington Collection North, uh, PBM in, in Federal Way. It's like there is a direct correlation to bonsai culture sort of centering around collections that are being intentionally handled and resources being put into these because the exposure to the public is so big. And 
one thing that I talked with Aaron a lot about is like, and 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 I think Aaron was co- committed to, and PBM has been really supportive of Mirai. We've collaborated a lot on a lot of projects. You know, the lab project ultimately was yep. um, was the product of like a PBM Mirai collaboration that Aaron and his and Kathy and that whole crew took and ran with it and grew it into something really special. But these institutions, you know, it's like. The, cur- the curator uh, of bonsai collections is asked to do so many things. You're asked to teach people. You're asked to maintain that collection and, and, and be, you know, an artist or at least a craftsperson, depending on the curator and sort of your own personal ethos and then the, the board and the people informing the decisions of the collection. Um, you're, you're asked to be uh, a creative coming up with these ideas of how do we continue to grow the exposure, the art of bonsai. And I've always wondered as a bonsai professional, why do more institutions not hire professionals to do something more, you know, than come and work on a tree? And honestly, most institutions don't even hire bonsai professionals to come and work on a tree. That's that's a fair, fairly rare. But I look at that and I've, so th- this is point one, you know, that I wanted to throw out to you as somebody who seems to have an open ear from the Botanical Garden in Chicago wanting to do greater things. You know, when these famous trees and collections need to be worked on or altered, why not put that out to bid to bonsai professionals that then have to submit a concept and submit a proposal to be able to alter the history of very famous trees? And I say this from having, you know, traveled the world, worked on a lot of famous trees and collections internationally, and then seen other professionals come behind me, radically alter the tree, and in my mind, take away from the historical provenance, which, you know, working on historical trees means... do you have the experience of altering historical trees and being able to make the decisions that still maintain original DNA and move that forward with a more, uh, a modern progression? Most people don't have that skill set, right? The history of Japanese bonsai and working on Japanese bonsai where you're touching history certainly does give Japanese trained artists, I think, a little bit more time behind the trigger on that particular skill set. But, but seeing sort of the alteration of historical pieces in a less favorable direction really sort of catalyzed this concept for me. And and I talked about this on a podcast way back in Australia when I was working in Canberra, but continue to this day to hope that an institution could implement uh, a historic, you, you know, sort of like a, a project scope for historical alteration of trees that professionals could put in their, um, you know, their concept to and have it be sort of selected. But more than that, why don't, if you have the eye of the public and the support of the collection, why not create or commission as any art institution would commission an architect, an artist to do an installation? Why not commission installations for the representation of these landscapes that, you know, an artist could come in and create and you could sell as an educational opportunity to have a permanent display created in the Chicago Botanical Collection of an environment, right? Now, obviously, how many bonsai professionals out there, uh, how many bonsai professionals are there out there that have exercised the muscle of trying to be able to represent nature in miniature and have the capacity to create large-scale installation bonsai pieces? Not many, not many, but there are some, you know? And so I've I've wondered that, and as I've moved more into like 
installation art from like bonsai in a ceramic container that mimics the antique Japanese proportions of the ceramic vessel and moved into other materials and greater scales and scopes and representing the ecosystem in miniature and the specific instances of those ecosystem exploring the ecosystem. I, I feel like, gosh, now is the time to move out of the static concept of the bonsai container being the limitation and installation art creating these ecosystems and in a public facility, building the ability to pull the facility, the community and the public into this creation to create a learning environment where public institutions can also partner with you guys to be yep. a part of this and maybe even fund it uh, makes total sense. And now I'm going to take you to the third step of what I'm thinking about, which is why wouldn't the Chicago Botanical Gardens fund a Mariah in the Wild uh, project where we actually go into an embattled ecosystem in that region, right, of the North American continent to do a project in the wild that the Chicago Botanical Gardens got behind that then had the composition created in addition to the film that's created, sponsored by the Chicago Botanical Gardens, as something that continually lives in the collection and tells this story that immediately connects people to a regionally specific situation or scenario that allows the Chicago Botanical Gardens to be a cutting-edge institution seeking and, and, and really putting their money where their mouth is in terms of conservation and sustainability. Yeah, that's, I think that that would be awesome. Uh -huh. And we have, a, we have an amazing conservation um, you know, team at the garden that I haven't even tapped into yet. Now, a lot of it's prairie plants and a lot of it is herbaceous stuff, you know, but there's certainly woody plants involved. Um, and there's, there's more than, than I, you know, am, am familiar with at this point, but yeah. I think that something like that would be a great way to even kind of kick off this, this directional change, you know, and then we can, you know, kind of build off of that. And the garden is always looking for, you know, content and stories and connections. And we're, we're the garden is, um, we're, we're launching some new branding and I'm, I'm not at liberty to say a lot about it, but it, there, there's, um, you know, the, this is something that I think would really fit into what this, this kind of new idea of, of the garden and how it's breaking down into the different, um, um, organizations that are attached to the garden we have windy city harvest we have the conservation society we have all these different things that are um separate from kind of this the 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 hub of the garden campus you know so um i do think that there's lots of opportunities to have collaborations like that and to um use that as a tool for kind of connecting with people in our region yeah, I think, uh, well, and I just look at where Chicago is positioned on the Great Lakes and to think about the Great Lakes as an ecosystem that has very unique flora uh, in relation, you know, whether you're talking about the jack pine, you're talking about the tamarack larch, whether you're talking about the, the eastern white cedar. Uh, or any number of other sort of species that exist uh, along the Great Lakes banks, whether it's north, south, east or west of that massive, you know, freshwater body unit. It's like, well, there's really a lot of stories to be told there. There's some ancient landscapes to be represented there. There's some conservation and sustainability themes and concepts. There's a human history there that you can touch on. It's like, you know, what story do you want to tell and what story or, or, or group or institutions do you want to collaborate with? But also, 
what artist are you going to pull in to do this? And obviously I'm petitioning you right now, Chris Baker, because you, you started talking in these big ways and, and it, and it is exactly what Mariah has started to do. And it's like, Oh, well, Chris Baker and the Chicago Botanical Gardens are talking about things that, that are really near and dear to, to my heart. So I felt like it would be, um, I felt like not to put you on the spot, you know, and it's not even like I'm going to use this as leverage or anything, but why wouldn't I approach you about it? That would be stupid because that's, it sounds like what you're interested in doing and what your institution is committed to doing is exactly the direction that I think bonsai needs to head to move past vanity into actually having an impact on a greater level towards conserving and preserving these wild spaces you know and and i was like really inspired by what you were saying and then it's like well i don't have a choice now i've got to get chris back on here and i've got to tell him you know what i I, no, i i that's awesome i think it would be amazing to collaborate on something like that um i think it would be mutually beneficial and i think it would be pretty cool there's there's so many you know aside from the prairie you know like you're saying there are so many cool uh not far from me is actually um a, a really cool bog area it's called volo bog yeah and it's amazing because the 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 tamaracks are just growing on vegetative carpets you know but there's also uh, red twig cornus and there's winterberry and there's like so many other things um you know um sphagnum moss and there's like there's different there's I, I go there, I go there quite a bit and there's this cool boardwalk that walks out through the bog and there's a small eye that's left, um, that sh- there's actually still water showing, but it's like every single season is awesome. Not only with the, uh, the flora, but the fauna. And it's just like this, it's, it's just the coolest little place and it's got tons of migratory birds, but it all, the, the, the plants that are there and the stuff that's growing there is has amazing adaptations right i mean to, to get a tree to grow on a vegetative carpet of sphagnum moss you know it's like and there's water underneath it and uh this eye is closing down there's a there's a crazy story there that could be um and it could be a really cool planting with some really interesting species you know mm-hmm. my, my thing too and, and for a lot of these places probably would be a sticking point would be to actually collect material from they get permission to collect material from these areas that then could be used within these compositions and then have it really come full circle versus just getting some large from a nursery or something like would, could they be taken from this area? Could we take cuttings even of things and propagate and like actually use the same plant material and DNA that is existing in these areas? Which is and like, I think that, which is the long term, which is the long term, right? That's like taking it to the farthest degree of contextual representation, but also, you know, starting out with material that uh, that the material guides the dance of the ecosystem that it can represent, and then using that tree as this sort of apex contextual, you know, spokesman, if you will, uh, right. that allows you to then find the story, you know, and it's like, from what angle do you want to approach these projects? My yeah. ethos is that the tree leads the dance. So, when we decide to explore an ecosystem, it starts with a tree that has some symbolic representation of an ecosystem. And then I recognize I need to take this tree to that ecosystem to learn everything that I possibly can about what this tree has to offer in, in, in terms of this piece of material. And I, and I feel like that is the way that I approach it. The way that you're talking about approaching it is, is being like, 
you know, you're talking about a long-term project, but why can't you do eat? Why can't you do it all? Why can't you do it in, in, in any of these ways? I think the limitation to, you know, collecting is always going to be a sticking point. So it feels like, well, what if, what if, what if you found a representative form of a Tamarack that has aesthetics close to what a bog would create. And, you know, if you're just going to talk about a bog, let's just jump into bogs. Like you're talking about one of the greatest carbon sequestering ecosystems in the world, one of the most sensitive and also one of the most embattled ecosystems in the world because we are destroying bogs at the most rapid rate of any environment outside of the rainforest right now. We're just destroying every bog on face of planet Earth, right? So it's like, that's a great story to tell. You've got a bog that's slowly shrinking and disappearing probably because water's being diverted for agronomical reasons. And, you know, the pressure of people are probably also causing the bog to, you know, change its behavior. The environment around the bog is probably being transformed, which is shifting the behavior in the bog. You know, it's like all of these thematics that you could explore around the value of that ecosystem and the aesthetic of the tree in that ecosystem drives that story. It's like, it's a, it's like, this is really what we've learned at Mirai how to do very well. You know, like I'm flying to Italy in two weeks to continue our project on the Puglian olives because they continue right. to they they continue to decline. the The pathogen of xylella has broken the topographical barrier. Now the you know the olives in Spain and Portugal suffered from drought last summer, flood this summer. You know the the olive industry on a global scale is is suffering dramatically, and Puglian olives are 15 percent of the olive trade, and they're dying of xylella, and there's no control of the disease now. You know, so it's like yeah. this is a growing story. It's like a dateline, you know, uh, journalistic story that is happening. And this is happening every day across the world for every species of tree. Basically, it's like it's like phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And I think that, you know, pairing with places like um, like that place. And then again, you know, they could it could go there at times and they could be there. People could see it and they could be, you know, a little more up and close, uh, up close and personal to see these things and use them as, uh, as tools, I, I think would be, I, I think the bog, you know, would be a, a, a really cool one to even, you know, to, to explore doing it there. I mean, now doing it there, you know, you know, you know, getting into the space and stuff would, would provide some logistical challenges, but you know, that's just uh, any space. Any space is going to provide some logistical challenges. Anything yeah. worth doing, though. Anything worth doing. Yeah, like right. you got to you got to work around it. You know, it's like yeah. it's it's been it's been a monster to do these projects in the wild because you know yeah. we we spend a lot of time talking to the national park system and and getting permits and having the ability to film and you know working with plant matter in the national parks is like a really is re- right. always a really bringing, difficult bringing material in right yeah and and some and some some parks are 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 uh you know understanding or sympathetic or interested and others aren't and you know it's like my my north star is yosemite uh a project in yosemite i don't know if we'll ever get it done but I'm going to continue, yeah. I'm going to continue working at it until I get a definitive no. And that hasn't happened yet, you know? So it's like, <laughs> right. uh, but I really, after our talk last time, I was like, okay, Chris Baker is the perfect guy to talk to about this because y- you have like-minded concepts of what bonsai can be. And the Chicago institution seems like it's behind you. 
in terms of having your back and wanting to progress the power of bonsai as a communication tool within the botanical garden. And it's like, well, now all of a sudden, now now all the pieces are in place to, to, to play the game of chess, which is figuring out how you use bonsai to actually bridge the gap instead of um, being representative it is contextually accurate. You know, and that's a real powerful breakthrough right there. Like if you can, yeah. if you can take people to the place and you can bring them on the journey of that creation, they're a part of it, they're invested in it, but also what you learn in that process is something that I never dreamed would happen going into the native environment. What I have learned about trees in the landscape and bonsai through that experience has changed everything about what I do. And it, and it really is at a point where it feels like that in itself is a, a, is a piece of public installation work, you know? And so there it is, there it is. It's out there. It's out there. I did it. (laughs) (laughs) No, that all sounds amazing. I think, you know, I, I think that, uh, like I said, collaborating with something like that and picking um, picking something locally, starting locally and picking something here to do, collaborating with CBG or, or collaborating with one of these natural areas and getting them on board, mm-hmm. um, you know, Lake County, um, that those like that fog in particular, they know, it's all part of the Lake County um, Forest Preserve. And so um, I've actually sent a message off. I'm not sure if it's the correct person, but just kind of with a rough, idea of some of the some of the, the things that we've discussed as far as you know creating something like that and so i'm i'm hoping to hear back from someone or at least get directed to a person who i can have that conversation with um and uh so yeah i'll i'll, I'll certainly keep you posted and see what kind of information obviously you guys have done this so mm-hmm. if there's you know, we can connect and, and have some information sharing as far as what maybe some tips on the process of getting um, connected with some of these organizations. And, and for me too, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, private organizations, uh, you know, to me, it's not, doesn't make that much of a difference versus like a, uh, a county thing or something like that. This obviously a lot of these areas are owned, certainly in this region are owned, um, by, you know, either county or state parks or that sort of thing. So you're, you're kind of working through that route, but yeah, but um, what better? I think it would, what better, right? You know, sometimes right. private is is more uh, effortless because it's one person that can say yay or nay. But like, right. it, if it's truly about public awareness and and spaces right. that the public is invested in and building value or understanding around these uh, mutually, you know, like one of the grand things about living in North America, you living in the United States is our is our public lands, you know, it's like right. the national parks. Uh, I understand there's like a lot of conflict and controversy around national forest service and land management and BLM and land management and national parks. And, and, you know, are you a naturalist? Are you a conservationist? You, you know, and like all, all, there's all of these internal debates that are constantly occurring that once you enter that world of public land management, you start to recognize how complex it is. But at the same time, Go find another model in the world that has the conservation efforts that have kept wild spaces available to the general public. It does not exist. It does not exist. And so inside of all of that conflict and controversy and embattled perspective, it's still the best model. And it it is a true gem of a resource that we have as 
people living in the United States to enjoy the fact that we all share an ownership, you know, to whatever degree people perceive ownership, but access is ownership in my mind. Uh, we all share in the ownership of these very special wild places and celebrating that and working with the institutions that, you know, have a significant knowledge and also have been tasked with the continual preservation of that. That's, that's freaking awesome. You know, that's awesome yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And they have good resources too. You know, you can, you start combining resources with these organizations and exposure, um, you know, I mean, the garden has over a million people that comes that come a year. You know what I mean? That kind of exposure plus Insane. whatever, however many people come to, let's say, the bog and come through. And then they have organizations, they have volunteer programs, you know, like all of that infrastructure um, is is there. And so it's kind of, you know, I, I definitely, you know, if you have a private person that owns land, nobody gets to see it. And so it's like, you know, so, yeah, the uh, aside from some of the red tape, I think that, uh, you know, pairing with one of those types of um, you know, ecosystems that is managed by one of those types of things is, is definitely a better option. Well, and think about, think about being, I mean, I, I, I do look at not for the sake of like being able to say we were the first, but I do look at institutions that take, you know, that put, put their money where their mouth is and they take a progressive approach to actually doing something that nobody else has done to like increase and ramp up conservation efforts. I mean, if you put a bonsai tree on a sidewalk in an urban environment, people flock to it like flies on honey. You know, it's like it's a there is a magnetism from bonsai. There is a curiosity of this miniature ecosystem that exists there. And all of a sudden creating these creating these microcosms as installations. It's like there isn't another there isn't another institution in North America. I don't know that there's another institution anywhere uh, that has ever done that. The largest scale composition that I've ever seen uh, outside of Marai and our redwood forest is is um, uh, a big slab planted uh, Ezo spruce at the the Crespi Bonsai Museum in in Italy. You know, and and that is a sort of a standalone, awe inspiring, one of a kind piece that I think Saburo Kato had like a hand in, and Saburo Kato created these compositions that were representative of these mixed forests of the northern islands of Hokkaido, with the spruces and the beaches all planted yeah. together. Which, you know, very few of those still exist. They were largely Saburo Kato was the creator and also the dude that could keep it alive. And I don't know that any of those compositions have been able to continually be moved forward or even survive over time. But like, you know, I think there have been these, I mean, Goshen would be uh, a, a perfect gesture of a contextual composition that there's Goshen 2, there's Goshen 3. These things were created right. publicly, you know, as sort of this repetitious concept. There's value in this, but but Goshen represented a familial relationship, a human interaction through the form of the tree, which is beautiful. I mean, this is an amazing concept that John Naka, as a pioneer, uh, executed, and it raised everybody's awareness. Well, what about the Chicago Botanical Gardens creating installations that are representative of the landscapes of North America? No other, no other institution is doing this. It, it, it would be cutting edge on every level, you know? And I just, yeah, yeah I, I've been like seeking... I've been like seeking this move outside of uh, uh, of this incubator at Marai where we've got, you know, before I before I created the the Redwood Forest, which is a, you've seen it yourself. It's a massive uh -huh. installation, right? 
um, yeah. that we built a building around to house it because it was, you know, so complex. Like I had never created a forest before. Mr. Kimura created, you know, all these rock planted forests and stuff. And quite honestly, like the creation of those was so painful that I really yeah. didn't like, you know, helping him with it. It was like, it was really hard, um, to, to please him in those composition creations. So those came with a lot of uh, scrutiny. <laughs> but like once I created that, I was like, wow, these these forests and these ecosystems, the bald cypress forest, pygmy cypress forest, Doug fir forest, you know, like Colorado spruce forest, like we started creating these, uh, the, the beach forest, we started creating these forests at Mariah. And I was like, wow, upsize this, you know, create redwood forest compositions as installation art that are ecosystems unto themselves. That is that is really something. That is really yeah. something special, right? And that, and you know, and the redwoods are such a great example because what I mean, how many other trees are truly like this ecosystem onto itself, with having all kinds of life growing uh, at the tops of these trees and how they how they function and take on water and like I mean, it's it's just like it's just one of the coolest trees. Um, and I was when I went out to do the for my honeymoon went out there, flew into Seattle. We drove down to San Francisco over the course of about two weeks and we camped in uh state in Seattle, camped in Mount Rainier, uh, went to Portland, went to uh, camp uh, and then went to the Redwood forest and camped in there. And it was like a religious experience. And we sure. went to, we were to the, the park rangers were doing all these talks on them and all. I mean, it was just like, I was completely blown away by, how complex and and what that whole ecosystem was but the the trees alone being kind of their own ecosystem so i love um you know i and we they don't grow very well here you know it's like we're pretty we get extreme heat we you know the cold is okay because i can manage that we have one sequoia we have meta sequoia as kind of representations you know so we're kind of doing that but um that, that's just, uh, that's just a fascinating tree, mm-hmm. and the ecosystem that comes with it is is pretty uh, spectacular. I love mosses and that that moist environment. Like it was just like everything grows on everything. You've got ferns and mosses, and um, you know it's just like salamanders and these. You know it was just it was pretty. It was just it was crazy, and yeah. that and and to be able to to do that um, and and would be something like that would be really awesome too. Yeah. Yeah. Did you listen to the Lucy Kerhulis podcast that we did? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's her, her theory of the redwoods feeding the fern mats in the upper canopy, you know, through, yeah. through this continual sort of like, you know, basically adventitious root formation, which it's so fascinating because in bonsai, we, you know, we air layer, we graft, we take cutting, right. we propagate and like, it, it's, it, it is no thing to put like some moist moss on a, on a juniper branch and get it to produce roots. But in like big canopy tree research, people are like, oh my gosh, can you believe it produced roots at the top of the tree? And for a bonsai person, it's like, yeah, oh yeah, no, I could totally believe that. It's like, I, <laughs> right. I, I mean, that's kind of like commonplace for us, you know? And that's right. really where I feel like our perspective in bonsai gives, gives bonsai the ability to really have some revolutionary contributions to the greater macro system, you know, and like the, the, the constant challenge is how do you create that credibility in bonsai? How do you create that credibility in this tiny tree to impact the perception of physiology and the perception of conservation and sustainability in the bigger tree? That's really the challenge. If 
your ambitions of bonsai having that kind of power and influence, you and I are both now tasked with understanding that that's possible, how we empower the tiny tree to be able to have the voice that we know it has, but people that are not knowledgeable about it have no clue that it has. You know, right. that's a real, real big responsibility, Chris Baker. That's a big <laughs> yeah. responsibility you've taken on. You said big things last time. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm up to that. I'm up to that. I feel like you are. That's why I wanted to talk to you again, because I was like, oh, yeah. OK, well, this is going to work well. Yeah. Yeah. I, and and the, I think that the ultimately, the, you know, just educating people, you know, is is kind of the big thing, because whether it's something simple like, you know, teaching people that, you know, like here again, I live and where uh, we have a, a lake by my in my community and all the water goes into the lake from the community, from surrounding agriculture and just, you know, educating people about, you know, lawn care, like, you know, spraying stuff on your lawn. Everything you put on your lawn goes directly into the water, you know, like our, you know, understanding our impact on the environment and how everything we do kind of does that. And so I think a big part of that is just like people don't know or they're, they've been taught otherwise, or they're maybe not interested. So how do we not only teach them, but actually make them interested in it? And then how do we convince them to somehow alter the way that they conduct themselves for the betterment of these environments, right? So then it's like, it just, it, it, that part of it, the educational part of it, the exposure part of it is, I think, the is really the key to actually making broader change versus then now just having this installation that is representative of this area that's in 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 need um but without the education without the outreach without the communication with the community then it just still becomes another thing that is really nice to look at and has done well and you know so it's like there has to be that that additional buy-in from not only the organizations pairing with CBG, but, you know, the Botanic Garden as well, because we have such a great um, ability to reach a lot of people. You know, I don't know how many members we have, although I probably should, but we do have, uh, you know, again, a lot of people come to the Chicago Botanic Garden every year for various reasons, you know. Well, that's where, and do, and, and, that's where film, it's, it's where film, that's where you right, tell, right, that's where you tell a story. So it's not just a pretty thing to look at, but the story yeah, yeah, of right. it is told. And that's why you pull people into the creation process and let them be a part of it. And that's where you take people yeah. out and then connect them to this microcosm and help them see the voice of the, you know, it's like all yeah, of those yeah. things. And then, you know, here's the other thing, like I see you having big thoughts. It's like, okay, well, yeah, you put Roundup on your yard and that in, uh, ends up in the, you know, the the water system that is, you know, causing a tremendous amount of problems, especially as it uh, enters the ocean and, you know, all of the things that happen at all these terminus of fresh water. Um, but what about, you know, promoting bacteria decomposing, uh, glycosate decomposing bacteria as like a solution and proliferation of that and the ins institutions or science behind that, which is a re you know relatively recent breakthrough, to be able mm. to remediate some of these like highly toxic circumstances where we're all finding glycosate in our in our body as a result of the amount of Roundup applied across the world to our our, our foods that we're ingesting, and like the, I just when people when you say conservation, when you say sustainable, these are nebulous terms. It's too big. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, hey, Chris, be a conservationist. It's like, well, pff, 
where does that even begin? You know, where does that right. even begin? But like, there's this little tree and, and it can start here, you know, and that's a, a, a digestible step. That's an incredible learning device. And you just happen to be the captain of the ship of a, of a profound public institution. That seems, you know, and, and this whole thing started with like the renovation of the Chicago Botanical Gardens where I was like watching from afar and like, okay, most institutions are pulling funding or most institutions are scratching and clawing for the finances to promote bonsai. Chicago's not. Chicago is, is, sees the value in the bonsai, you know, like the Huntington Library and Gardens in Pasadena, California, the largest draw to people coming through that garden for a majority of its existence in terms of the botanical section of it was the bonsai. And yet it is the most underfunded of the entire botanical collection now. And, and I, and I'm, I, that's a broad term. I don't want to like slander the Huntington, but I know that the funding to have a full-time curator is a really challenging endeavor. And the resources that are going into the bonsai continuing to have the provenance and availability to the public is, is a challenging endeavor compared to all the other yeah. places you can spend money. The fact that CBG put that money into a renovation of the bonsai facility and that they have, you know, a curator where they're giving you resources and the ability to function. It's like, wow, that's a real diamond. That's a real gem of an institution. There's real potential here. And, 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 and it's very obvious and I can see it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. They definitely, I mean, and so much has changed in the nine years that I've been there and, and they have done a lot to, um, you know, to, to invest in the bonsai. And I think starting with me, you know, you know starting with that full-time person, then getting into the, the brand new facility. Um, next year, they're going to be doing hopefully some upgrades on the display area. And there's even, uh, I've been pushing for shade for nine years because it's the exposure in the courtyards is limiting as far as our diversity, certainly during the heat of the summer and the growing season, and also the amount of labor it takes to, water rotate trees all of that stuff and finally getting some traction on the potential for some sort of shade structure um which will will really change how we do things so um so yeah so the garden is can you know you know we've been through obviously even just through covid and everything else like you know the garden is has had its ups and downs of course um you know through the years but i think that um it's a place that people want to come. It's, you know, not only for, um, you know, the horticultural stuff, but there's so many other things that go on there, Mm -hmm. you know, from cooking classes to, you know, education, to, um, conservation, to, you know, just, you know, events like everything. So it's, it, it brings in a lot of people. Um, and it, it, it definitely, you know, in this region has a really big outreach. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I think that, um, you know, the bonsai is, is, you know, one part of many things that the garden does, but it's like, it's always, <laughs> I'm all, you know, I'm still always, it's a, it's still, you know, I'm always just like trying to find ways where the bonsai fit into what the garden is doing because the yeah. garden has a lot of things that they do. And so I'm always looking for ways to, okay, you know, how can we get the bonsai included into that? And more than ever, the garden is open to you know, how, you know, the, including the bonsai and being a part of that. So that's been really great to see over the, you know, even over the last five years to see that change, excuse me, to see that change of mentality and to see, you know, like, how, how can we, and, um, you know, I've had, I've had you know good bosses that have really pushed 
you know, to, to keep the bonsai into those conversations and that sort of stuff. So, um, so it's been really good to see that change. And so I do think that now, you know, it's like there's momentum and, um, and, you know, taking on something like this, you know, there's been a lot of conversations certainly by me and with strategic planning about, you know, what is, what is the bonsai collection? What, what is our identity? What is our branding? If you will, you know, I feel like again, a lot of other collections, have an identity and and they do something specifically or do something very well um and i just you know i part of it's because of me but it's just like you know we're you know we're a bonsai collection we have a display you know we're doing more in you know i'm doing more indoor um displays like during the the midwest the midwest the infamous midwest show um <laughs> in that cradle gallery and and making more themed you know more consciously themed displays and utilizing spaces and, and, you know, we do world bonsai day. And so the, you know, the garden has been really supportive of, of that stuff and supportive. Um, you know, it always helps to start a little bit slow and just kind of get mm -hmm. people introduced to the idea of doing things when, you know, there's a way of navigating big institutions, but, um, you know, I've got great support. I'd really do. And, um, and the organization does have some, some resources to, to do things. And so I, I, you know, I, I think that we are in a position and, and I think that at some point we, there's an obligation, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like we can kind of continue on just being a display or we can, we can direct resources and direct energy and time to being something more and and i and i think that you know like i said I, I feel like that that at some point will become kind of this obligation and i think that more and more collections again you know and, and a lot of other i, I don't even, i have never even been to all the collections unfortunately although i'm trying to get around to all of them and 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 they all do something unique you know they all have something in my opinion and that's kind of as i've been going to all these collections um, and there's a few that, you know, I, I talk about a lot. Um, they just have, they, they just have something mm -hmm. that just makes them who they are. And I just feel like this is an opportunity to, you know, for whatever portion it is, right. It's not, we have 300 trees, so it's not, you know, we're, it, it's going to be a portion of the collection that we can really, you know, have stuff out at all times and like really focus on that and, um, to your point, you know, using social media and using other avenues that, um, you know, through the garden that, of course, the garden has in place um, to be able to tell the story and to yeah. get that out. And the yeah. garden loves nothing more than to tell the story and connect people with plants. I mean, that's what we're that's what our mission is, you know, to use plants to, you know, to enrich people's lives, to connect and enrich people's lives. So it's like, yeah, OK, so the bonsai fits right into that. And even some of the new branding and the new stuff that the garden's going with, like this really fits into that. And I feel like they, they're looking broader. They're looking more, you know, in, in, in globally and they're, and, and, and I think that the garden is in a really good place for something like this to happen to the bonsai. I think they're fortunate to have a curator like yourself that has this sort of forward thinking awareness, because I think, Obviously, like you said, every institution has to choose a curator that works for their mentality and their ambitions moving forward. But I think like the bonsai sphere has been so limited, right? Like you, you need somebody who knows about bonsai to take care of this bonsai collection. And it's like that in itself is a little bit of a needle in a haystack. 
But then if you want to be a progressive institution and really be elevating and using bonsai for the totality of its power and strength that the art form has, it's like, well, then 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 you do need to find somebody who is thinking about it in, I think, unique and um, sort of you know, more, more peripheral ways instead of the tunnel vision of bonsai as like, this is a, an Asian art form. I mean, it has spread so far and wide. And I think like you talked about the religious experience of your time in the Redwoods. Like I look at that religious experience as being the, the sort of, you know, that experience of, uh, of being completely and totally, humbled and inspired and aware of your place in the world. I think that was the 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 origins of pinging. You know, because you say yeah. pinging was was this practice, it was a religious practice to bring these sort of like monumental experience of experiences of the wild environment back, you know, from that place where it's like you see a 5,000-year-old tree, 3,000-year-old tree, three or 400-foot-tall tree, and you're like, man, how do I remember this? How do I capture this? And, you know, enter the miniature tree, the representation of nature in miniature. And it's like, you know, then it travels with Buddhism and Taoism from China to Japan and becomes bonsai under the pressure, you know, of the confined island nation of Japan and it in this pursuit of perfection and the shokunin mentality and all of these things, you know, and this more wabi-sabi sort of uh, appreciation of the inability to strike perfection. And it's like that that in itself is spectacular. Now now you move into this context of like uh, uh, a culture di- dictated by this grand access to wild spaces and and public ownership of these very special ecosystems, it only makes sense to me that bonsai at this point in this current time and era in North America take this step, you know, and it's like, I think you said it best when you said it's almost an obligation. It's It's from that perspective that I operate at Mirai where... I do shamelessly plug what we've developed the capacity to do here and offer that to institutions or people that feel like we see eye to eye because I don't look at it as like, what can I get? I look at it as this is what this is what bonsai has to offer. This is what I have to offer as a professional. This is my obligation. If bonsai is not about the vanity then it is about using the miniaturized tree as a spokesman or a spokesperson for the conservation and sustainability of these very rare and unique wild environments, right? Like otherwise, otherwise it is a practice of vanity and that is, it's too challenging. It's not lucrative uh, and it completely consumes your life. So there better be a good reason for it. You know, there better be a good reason <laughs> yeah. for it. Otherwise, go find something else to do. There's like so yeah. many things that would take less effort and be far more um, socially and resource um, rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would get more sleep, I think, if oh, I was sh- doing something else i would have less gray hair you know like i would have le- i would have less gray when hair I started, when i started my chin hair i was bald but I, my chin hair was brown when i started yeah. at and i remember jack he said it on your podcast but he said it to me years ago when i was volunteering is you know the the bones i are the the first thing i think of in the morning and they're the last thing i think of at night right and i just remember thinking to myself man this guy really loves bones right i'm like wow he just thinks about it all the time 
little did I know that I'd be waking up at three in the morning and be like, oh my God, what about this? And then, oh, tomorrow I got to do this and we got to move these trees. And like, it's, it's all consuming and, um, you know, and it, and it makes it challenging sometimes in life to be present when you're not there because it's like your mind is always going. And so when I had my son, it was like a real challenge for me to be present. And I really had to work at that because I would be sitting there with him and thinking about something going on at the garden or something like that. And I'm like, this is not fair to anyone. And, you know, and so we, that was something I really had to teach myself. And it still is, it's, it's still a challenge because, you know, when it, it just, it just is. And, mm-hmm. it, and it's like, we're, we're so, you know, it's like, and we're so beholden to the trees, right. When, I was talking to to the group of people that were, I was touring at the garden, you know, and it was like, I don't really make the decisions. That's not, I'm not making the decisions. I don't choose to come up here and water at this time. Like the trees are telling me what to do. Right. I don't choose to do this or choose the needle pluck or choose, the tree is the one dictating what to do. I'm just, I'm just understand the cues or have been taught how and when to do things. And so I'm just beholden to this idea of, of doing that. So yeah, at some point, um, you know, uh, and not that there's anything wrong with just creating beautiful pieces of art and, and having people enjoy them and, you know, spreading, you know, this art form, because it does, even if you're just doing the art form, um, have a lot of benefits just to, you know, people emotionally, mentally, and just in itself and inherently, I think has a purpose. And I think that people do, you know, th- I think the people that get the most out of bonsai or or even the people I think that create the best trees are people that are in love with the process. Mm-hmm. People that are in love with the day to day, because that's where the, that's again, where the success is. And it's like, I would much rather create a bonsai than sit and look at one, right? I want to be in it. I want my hands in it. I want to be touching it and and being a part of the tree, sharing that experience with the tree. So, you know, so for me standing and, and, you know, and, and just staring at a tree for extended periods of time is not exactly where my true joy is in bonsai. I can learn a lot from that, right? Especially from my perspective. Um, but the true joy of it is the, the, you know, bonsai being a verb, not a noun, right. you know? And so, um, so I don't know where the hell I'm going with this, but somehow I got on this trail, but to, to make that more of a, to, to make that something that you can really impact people and show people that, you know, beyond that, beyond the work on the trees, beyond the cathartic nature of the work you know, doing something different like this or something where it, you know, it connects people and do natural environments, which to me is such, you know, I was a lover of trees before I even knew bonsai existed, right? I was hiking in the mountains of Colorado and, and, and spending time with old trees and not even knowing where I would be mm-hmm. 15 years later doing what I'm doing, having this conversation with you, right? Like I just, that was never, you know, until it was the plan, it was not the plan because it didn't even know it existed. Right. So my love of natural environments and, and having some sort of a, a conservation or eco mind um, has always kind of been there. And those moments like being in the redwoods, being in the Rocky mountains, um, those moments in life where you literally feel feel completely and utterly insignificant when you're standing and looking at a 200 year old redwood tree and you just look and you're just like the thing's been around you know for centuries and then you just like that moment or being in the rocky mountains and i was hiking one time in june 
and got caught in a snowstorm and was totally unprepared with my gear and was sitting there and I was just like, I couldn't find my place. Didn't know I was like turned around. Right. And you're like, you just, you realize how powerful nature is and how yeah. insignificant we're just like little amoebas, you know, floating around a Petri dish. Like, so those are the coolest moments in life to me. Like when you are being out in the ocean or some, you know, when you're, when you're in the, the presence of this greatness of your, of our natural resources and our natural environment, like not everybody's connected to that. Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone has seen redwood trees in person. Not everyone's been to the Atlantic ocean. Not everyone's been in the Rocky mountains, you know, and if we could take that and that ecosystem and that environment and package it in a way that might even inspire someone to go there, like there's true, there's, there's, there's something there, you know, there's power in that. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, we've kind of gone over it, but I, I just, I feel like that it's, that there's that opportunity, you know, you know, the implementation of it, um, is, is the next real challenge. I think the discovery of it has been, um, really exciting for me because now I do feel like, okay, this is the thing. Like I've found mm -hmm. it. I've, I've been, it's been nine years and I feel like, okay, I've found that thing. I've just stumbled upon it through several courses of, things that have happened. And now these conversations, of course, have even um, ignited that even more, added fuel to the fire. So, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I think that we're poised to, to have a greater impact. That's I really super, do. Yeah, it's super exciting. It's super exciting. I didn't, I didn't know how, you know, I didn't know how it would go to propose such a thing, but it's, you know, you, you, again, it's, it, it is always worth a try if, if it feels like there's going to be some positive productivity moving in the right direction. And it, it, it's, it's always tough to know how to collaborate, you know, but it's like, um, I think the general awareness, I was talking with my team this morning, just about the, the, the general awareness of bonsai in society at this point in time is probably larger than it's ever been. You know, it's like people sure. know what it is. I think like some of the stigmas are being broken down uh, in terms of associations. And like, ov obviously, there's always going to be, you know, assumptions made if you're not knowledgeable about an art form of what that art form is about, what its objectives are, etc. But like, I think now more than ever and the continual trend is going to be the more bone size pursued on a higher level inside of a singular country, culture, region, etc., the more knowledgeable the audience is going to be or the population base is going to be because it's, you know, the information is being spoken and distributed. And now there's such a greater expansive media and uh, knowledge on the Internet and online and accessible to people about this, you know, so, sort of quasi mysterious action of creating cultivating and and continuing to pursue bonsai as an endeavor as a art form as an expression as a as a you know like you say as a as a journey and so it's like really really fascinating I'm sure every generation feels this about their time on earth. You know, it's like going back and like seeing like every generation say like the next generation is like the world's going to hell and things are headed in the wrong direction and kids aren't as respectful as they used to be. And back in my day, I walked 10 miles to school with my books on my head through snow. You know, it's like that. that's like every generation is going to continue to yeah. look at that. But I do think I've been thinking about this more and more lately, the more time that I have spent in these like really ancient trees, like we are the generation currently or the, you know, there's several generations that are currently, you know, 
experiencing the same thing, but we legitimately could be the generation that, that sees the, the loss of a majority of the ancient trees on earth. You know, uh, yeah. we lost the 20% of the giant sequoias in two years. Uh, you know, like I'm taking, I'm taking my kid to see the giant forest this winter because there's a chance that the giant forest is no longer going to be there. You know, one forest, yeah. fi- we're one forest fire away. And I think we continue to see that trend, you know, we're uh, an insect infection away, we're uh, a pathogen away, Uh, where are all the chestnut trees, where are all the eastern hemlocks, where are all of these, you know, elms, ash, every, all of it, right? And so it's like, okay, that, that feels different to me. It feels different to me. Um, not having experienced any of these other generations that are facing, you know, and there's, you're talking about generations facing great depressions, the dust bowl era, world war two, the civil war. You're talking about, you know, England as a dominant world force, Portugal, Spain, like conquistadors, uh, the passing of smallpox, the loss of the Incas, my, like there's like, you know, these catastrophic events have been happening on a continuum through human history. I, I don't want to like compare this to that, but also because of the accessibility, exchange of information, et cetera, we are so aware of the changes happening now that it's almost like undeniable that we could be looking at uh, the extinction of far more happening far more quickly than ever before. You know, it's just like, wow, yeah. okay, all right, what's going to be here for our kids? What's going to be here for our grandkids? And it's like, this this could be a monumental shift in a direction that that we just haven't experienced as a, as a species. Yeah, for sure. And I think that the your point of like how rapidly it, 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 it things seem to happen now and how weather changes or other things or uh, beetle bores or whatever, like it seems like it, it, it comes on. The environmental changes, although of course have happened slowly over time, there are acute environmental changes that are happening aggressively, you know, and certain species of different things that are really being hit like really, you know, and, and, you know, to the point where all the ash have been removed, you know, from this area mm-hmm. and they're just like, you know, they're just, they're just, it's just not even a tree anymore, you know? So it's kind of, it's like, wow, that's pretty wild. Or like the American Elm. Um, I remember in Baltimore, when I lived in Baltimore, there was a house next to me that had to have maybe one of the oldest American Elms, certainly in Maryland. And this thing was massive and it had survived. And, and um, uh, it was like, it was, it was a really impressive tree just in this little, you know, was technically, I guess the city, but just outside the city. And I was just like, how the heck does this tree mm-hmm. survived all this time? And it was like, took up the entire backyard of the house that it was, you know, and it was like, it was just so cool to see it knowing that it was like not a tree that you just walked around and saw, you know, and what's going to be next, you know, a beach or something like that or, yeah. you know, yeah, you know, yeah, it's wild. It so, is, it is wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and also it's like one of the things, <laughs> you know, when you talk to, I was talking to Anthony Ambrose and, and his partner, uh, Wendy, who do just like, you know, significant vascular research in, in the redwoods and sequoias. And it's like, what's the general outlook for trees in the world? And they're like, not good, you know, but like there are species that are thriving in the shift. It doesn't have to be all doom. Sure. It doesn't have to be right, all right. doom and gloom, but also it's like, it's undeniable what has been lost. And it, it's been fascinating. I'm reading, uh, John Muir's, uh, our national parks, um, 
which is the book he wrote about uh, the formation of Yellowstone and, and Yosemite and uh, Kings Canyon and Sequoia. <clears throat> and I'm towards the end of the book now, and he's walking all of the ridgelines of of Kings Canyon and Sequoia, and he's discovering these these uh, giant sequoia groves that nobody's really walked, and there's timber mills in there that are you know cutting patches of them, but they're like under they're undersized and scaled to really have the kind of massive repercussions of like modern uh, deforestation with big machines, you know, it's like axes and saws and manpower cutting sure. down like these like giant sequoias so it's like okay this is a slow and steady kind of progression and he's talking about like the recession of the ice um carving out yosemite and carving these like major um formations in the granite of the sierra nevadas and Along the same lines, you know, like the time that I spent with Anthony and with Steen Christensen uh, in this cone collection project that they're doing to try and develop the genetics to reforest these big burn sites of these mega fires and the giant sequoias, like this general knowledge and awareness that like the recession of the ice and and like the abundance of fresh water and the climate that occurred from that massive event of you know, the formation of all of this that changed the top topography of, uh, of, of, you know, the, the world more or less, like we are still coming out of that, like the, the, this, this several, you know, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years process, we're still right in the middle of it, you know, which is like pretty radical to think that we're experiencing that. And yes, we are speeding up the process, but also the process has been in place for a very long time. You know, it's right. like, and that the exploration of that, the exploration of the fact that, you know, the oldest tree on earth being a 5,000 year old or close to, or maybe just past, depending on who you are and what tree research you look at, bristlecone pine, it's like, well, why isn't there a 6,000 to 7,000 year old bristlecone pine? Because it took that long for the environment to stabilize, to facilitate plant life at that point, 5,000 years ago for that right. pine adapted to that. And now things are changing so fast that plants can't regenerate and genetically adapt and stabilize in too rapidly of a changing environment, which, you know, 6,000, 7,000 years ago, the environment was changing too rapidly to facilitate anything that could live, you know, at least to the time frame that bristlecones did. So it's like radical to see this shift happening right now. I don't think people realize how profound it is, the the climactic shift. And we do take it it on the chin as like being contributors to climate change, but this is also a process that is far beyond us and far greater than us, that we just happen yeah. to be alive at that point. And what a special time, you know? Maybe yeah. devastatingly special, maybe profoundly special, maybe uh, enlighteningly special time to like be alive for this transition and like the the grappling with that. It's like, phew, and, you know, yeah. Woof. Well, it also it, it also poses an opportunity, you know, to maybe be a part of something good out of all of this, and, and to you know, and like you said, it's you know there are species that are adapting, and maybe some species are doing better, and and you know, and other things. So it's like, you know, have, you know, find something positive, or um, but take this as the opportunity to be a part of some solution or be a part of at least bringing awareness right at the at the very end of the day if you're bringing awareness then you're you're doing something and 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 calling people to action and giving people the knowledge and the resources to you know to do things um 
And so, you know, I guess that's, you know, we, that that's that's a positive thing you know and it's like you could sit around and say well okay but we can also sit around and say hey what what can we what can we do now if everyone did that right if everyone everyone did their tiny little thing right of course the collective is such a big impact just the same as everyone doing a tiny little thing that's not beneficial Mm -hmm. adds up you know over time and and so um so yeah that that's where i think the the you know there there's any anytime there's yeah, uh, you know, things like that, challenges or things that could be devastating in any way, shape, or form. There's, you know, there's always this opportunity to then do something different and to change something. And uh, whether we're changing our behaviors, we're changing how we think of things, we're changing how we inspire people to care, mm-hmm. right? And that's a big part of it. Like, you know, how do, how do you convince someone to care? How do you convince someone that, you know? on a small scale that it's okay if your lawn is a little brown because you're not pumping a bunch of phosphorus and chemicals into the lake, right? And how do you convince someone that, you know, the de- deforestation or forest fires are caused by, you know, impact that we could have and mm-hmm. how can we do something that's, that's going to at least be less impactful, you know, and, and, or, or to be on the positive side of things as far as change goes. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel like that at least is something that we could do and, and finding that having this this thing in bonsai, you know, just and, and having that at our disposal and having access to, um, you know, again, the organization like CBG, the following that you have pairing together is could could be something that we could not only have a small impact, but we could have a, a major impact, at least on um bringing to light some of these environments and, and how to, and then there, what is, what goes from there, right? Doing that is the mm-hmm. starting point. Yeah. Then people start, you know, people start coming out of the woodwork and, Hey, I do this and how can, how can I help? And I could do this, right? People, people want to help. A lot of times people just don't know how to help. Yeah. And so when posed with this idea of like, Oh, this is the thing. And now I could be helpful. Well, sure. Whether that's, supporting organizations or doing things or whatever, right? Not everyone can get out there and plant, you know, seedlings of redwoods, but how can you help the organization that's doing that? And how could you be involved with that and that sort of thing? So I think there's, you know, there, there's always that opportunity. There's always that opportunity to make a positive impact and a change in something um, when, when maybe people aren't really sure how to, you know? And so, it's it's kind of it's cool to to think that you know that to be a part of the change is always you know it, it, even on a small scale um but but thinking you know it's um i don't know if i said it earlier but there was an old slogan i remember as a kid maybe people still say it now is what i was like in elementary school so think globally act locally you know have this help this kind of global or national kind of mindset about things but how can you like do little things like integrated pest management with your bonsai, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, it could, you, don't, you don't have to, you know, people that, you know, you don't have to just like spray everything all the time and keep your environment sterile. Like, it, it, you know, it, it, applying integrated pest management techniques and like doing little things as bonsai practitioners, you know, is, is something that people can do too. So, uh, you know, there, there's always a way, I think, but people, um, you know, people need to know that and, and do and, and, and have an understanding of how they can, they can actually be a part of the solution versus what might be part of the, the cause, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I think I, people want to do people want to do the right thing. You know, a lot of times they don't know how to, or or you know, you know, it's a, a lot of times it's a lot easier to go the route that maybe is not very sound uh, environmentally, right? Or to just do it's easier to spray something than to you know check your tree every day and identify a pest and treat specifically and do all these things, right? And um, but like little, just like little things like that. So I think it's just, I think a lot of it comes back to exposure and education. I, you know, I, I it always seems to come back to that to me, it's like yeah. how, you know, just letting people know and, and, and not judging people too. People are afraid to, too. you know, like, you know, they, they don't want to be judged or they don't want to feel bad, but how can you package it in a way that's not like you're destroying my community, please don't do that. You know, like, how do you like get them on board, you know, and welcome them and, and, and not like, you know, shame people and, and keeping, you know, somehow engaging them versus like trying to change them through making them feel bad about their, <laughs> about their practices, you know? So, so hard is everything's so complex, especially with humans, you know, mm-hmm. trees are really easier to deal with. I know what they're going to do generally. And, I know what they want and need, you know, people, <laughs> yeah, <right>. people, are, <laughs> you know, if you, you cut a black pine candles, you know, that's going to make something like, you know, with people, you, you never know how people yeah. are going to respond, you know, just watch TikTok or uh, Instagram videos for five minutes. You'll be like, wow, people are crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. Things uh, have gotten wild. Things have gotten real wild. <laughs> <laughs> and that's another thing, like, you know, social media too, right? It's like, part of that stuff is social media can be the the solution, but social media also has so many downsides and, and there's so much, there's so much avenue, so many avenues for things to, that are misinforming people. Right. So been trying to find a way to utilize that. And also I think too, with these things is that the, the cycle of the news is so short that if, you know, that these things are not very sexy. They don't get always get a lot of traction because there's so much else going on and not only the world, but in the country that, you know, the, the news cycles are so fast that if you're focusing on an area, even these places that have these devastating storms, which, you know, depending on your thought process are, are caused by, you know, climate change, you know, it doesn't take long for people to forget about that because the next news story, I mean, it's still people suffering from Katrina, Right. So people that don't never got their houses back and like things like that. So it's like the news cycle turns over so fast that like you have to constantly keep reminding people of what, you know, of these things that that we that we feel are important, you know, and and how to keep reminding people of that without it getting lost. That's so interesting. There's still people. Yeah. Suffering from Katrina. That's that's a fascinating. uh, That's a fascinating statement that you just made. Yeah. And it's like. And it's just like on to the next one, you know, the train crash. Yeah, well, there's just been so many storms since then, but it's like, you know, but yeah, every now and again, it'll pop up. You'll still see a family that's totally displaced. It's like, how many years ago is that? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. like it's this, and the impact on those communities down there, the water rising and all these storms and stuff. It's like, you know, my parents live in Florida. So it's like every time the hurricanes come up, you know, it's like, brace yourself. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Buckle up. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> yeah. 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 All yeah. those poor bonsai people in Florida moving their trees all over the place. Like, what do you do down there when a hurricane comes? I mean, we're pretty lucky here. We have cold and extreme weather, but it's not, you know, we, 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 and occasionally tornadoes, but we don't, you know, we, we don't get these tropical storms and hurricanes yeah. and we don't get a ton of tornadoes. You know, they occasionally you'll hear of something, but it's like, the, the moving trees and doing all that stuff, um, you know, is, it's gotta be challenging down there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I, I thought about this a lot. I thought about it a lot in terms of like, what does bonsai have to offer like the broader community? And I do believe that like, um, this microcosm allows you to understand things about the macro environment that otherwise would be non-deducible. But I think the, 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 the other component, uh, of all of that is, um, Gosh, I just lost my train of thought right as I was uh, diving into that. Um, got it. Ugh, I have no idea. I lost it entirely. Lost it completely. <laughs> I was like, I was like, yes, no, this is great. Oh, got got it back. Okay. Um, you know, when you talk about people that are that are seeking and pursuing conservation, pursuing co- sustainability, you're talking about. Um, you know, agronomy is the study of, you know, growing large scale crops, food production, etc. Right. And then there's like horticulture, which is like more ornamental container grown plants or landscapes that are more sort of under the under the control of human beings. When you talk about ecology, you're talking about the study of ecosystems. But uh, in terms of like, the study of the tree, dendrology, or or arboriculture as the study of, you know, like pruning and managing like these large scale trees, it's like bonsai on a grand scale. You know, dendrology, it's like it doesn't quite wrap up uh, necessarily the value of a specific tree in any given ecosystem in the grander ma- macro environment. And I think it's like of of paramount importance. Sorry, my phone is just exploding right now, which hasn't happened all day long. So I just keep turning it off in case you're wondering why I'm looking down. But when you start to talk about ecologists and and naturalists and like these like, you know, John Muir's walking through the giant sequoias and he's paying attention to the size and boundaries of the groves and looking at where the ice must have moved, where the soil was deposited, where the moisture and exposure are giving rise to this condition that creates the giant sequoia. And the fact that sequoia are present in moist environments, not because they prefer moisture, but because the presence of this apex species creates the groundwater, right? By continually interacting with the soil environment and hydrating the ecosystem. And this is like so in line with like modern vascular research like his theories from like way back when as the dudes walking across the continent of North America just observing stuff right but nobody goes into a giant sequoia grove and values the individual character of a singular tree more than a bonsai person in my mind you know like this tree is special this yeah. tree, that tree speaks to me. And that, I mean, obviously there's like Sherman and, you know, sort of the these like um, sentinels of like the, there's Hyperion as the tallest redwood, Sherman as the largest tree, Methuselah as, you know, this sort of notion of the oldest tree on earth. But like each individual bristlecone on the White Mountains has something different to offer. And, and I really do believe that's where bonsai has like this very focused, almost tunnel vision sphere of tree appreciation is very special because I think you can focus people's attention on a single individual tree, whether it's small or large. And I think you can offer people the ability to conserve and sustain an individual tree, whether it's small and large, and you can give people the ability to have an impact through that singular tree and the connection to that singular tree more than you can give people 
uh, a mental capacity to understand their impact when you say we're conserving this 200 square mile space and it's like okay mm -hmm. well, that's too big you know that's too right. big and that really uh, resonated with me when I was hiking up to Sentinel Dome in Yosemite to see the site of the Ansel Adams Jeffrey Pine, which is very iconic. You know, it's his photograph of that image on the top of Sentinel Dome with like the expanse of the valley in the background is one of probably the most iconic photographs on earth. And that tree's yeah. dead. And that tree's dead because so many people hiked up to see it, you know, and they didn't hike up to destroy it. They didn't hike up to cut it down. They hiked up because they loved it. You know, mm -hmm. and it's like, wow, that is the power of a singular tree. That yeah. is, that is the, the hiking up Sentinel Dome is, you know, not pleasant. It's, it's a long, <laughs> it's like steep and it's way, it's way up there and it's like kind of painful, you know? Yeah. And, but people, so many people did it that that tree is dead now. It's like, that just mm. tells you, and they had the best of intentions. Most of them. Sure. Right. So it just tells you the power of a singular tree. And it's like, I think yeah. we, I think in bonsai, maybe we've like, we take that for granted because we all understand that in our own subconscious mind, but it's like, there's a real, you know, these installations, a singular tree, having this bigger story, telling that story in a medium that allows that story to be digestible and stuff. It's like, we're, we really are onto something. Like, I think, you know, when this was created in China for an individual to, you know, through the form of pinging, harness this experience of human in the raw untamed environment to bring that closer to home to preserve that memory and that profundity then moving to japan now moving to north america it's like we're really onto something uh, of the singular tree being of such significant value and maybe we're onto it and understand it more intimately than any other endeavor because a dendrologist is not uprooting a giant sequoia and playing with its roots you know right but right. we but we are handling hundreds of year old trees and maybe even thousand of year old trees in bonsai on the most intimate level. Nobody else is doing that. Like it's it's really a special thing that we've engaged with on this level. And to think about it having a more positive uh, macro benefit, it ju it just motivates me beyond you know a quantifiable term. It's really yeah. I think uh, certainly the future for me. Yeah. And I think too, you know, tree, like I remember trees from when I was a kid, like trees would press upon you. And even at a young age, trees I climbed or trees in my neighborhood or trees in my yard, like, you know, and it, I think one of the, 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 the most fun or one of the, uh, one of the things that I enjoy the most is like, if someone comes up and tells me like that one of the trees reminds them of something, you know, that reminds them of a tree they saw or they went hiking somewhere and like, oh, this tree looks just over here. People say that looks like that tree that we saw someplace. Like to me, that connection is priceless. Right. It's to get a person to, you know, it, it, it evokes emotion. Mm -hmm. Right. It bones. I evokes emotion in people. And again, you know, another way to use that emotion to then, you know, to do something with it, you know, take a tree. Um, you know, that, that, you know, have a QR code where you can on the sign there, you could scan the QR code for that tree. And it takes you to a link that you could do something to help out the environment that yeah. this tree comes from, right? Like there's to, to do that stuff and, and the power to reach people, um, is real. And that comes kind of on that artistic level, right. And that level of people, but then it's like, um, you know, I, I, I really enjoy when I feel like, someone especially the trees that i feel like we have that i are, are look more like trees in nature um the bald cypress tree or the limer pine like something like that where um 
you know, the, the trees I feel like are more of a natural style. I feel like people, when people see a, you know, more traditional bonsai, like to me, they, to, to them, that's unattainable mm-hmm. to have a pine where every single need, every single needle is pointing in the proper direction. And it's really, this branch is here. And it's this formal thing that people think when they see bonsai, but I don't think they connect to that as much because it doesn't, it's not tangible. It's not something they've seen in their landscape. But if you have a tree that seems more natural, is more asymmetrical and has all, you know, different features, I feel like the connection is greater. And I feel like, especially in our culture, right? Because we did, people didn't grow up seeing bonsai that were, you know, like you're driving through Japan and you see bonsai in people's front yards and in alleys and like wherever, right? So they're part of kind of, people see them here, like, there's this, there's a connection to that and people think they're pretty, but I, I don't think that they, they, they just don't think that it's something they could either do or that, um, you know, it doesn't seem that real. People will, I'll hear people say too, like, is, are these real? Are they, are these things real? You know? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, and maybe in one way that's a compliment because I, I don't know, but in other ways it's like, well, yeah, of course I want it. I want them to look real. Right. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> that's what I'm trying um, to do. But if it's a tree that they have seen or a species they've seen, you know, the connection is always greater. I feel like, you know, the human connection to trees is really powerful and the power of trees is, is undeniable for sure. Um, And, you know, that's part of why I love bonsai, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, you know, that, that, that connection to something that's so much bigger and greater than you are something like a giant sequoia or a huge oak here in a field, a 200 year old oak tree that's sprawled out and it's asymmetrical and there's, you know, branches going everywhere and branches are breaking every single rule of bonsai. And it just looks amazing. The trunk's hollowed out and it's like, you know, and it's just like this, you know, it, it, we have that, you know, every region has that, you know, and they're not all giant sequoias. They're not all, you know, uh, bristlecone pines, but there, there is, there is that kind of tree in, in just about every region that people can connect to and, and, you know, using those, um, you know, those, those species that connect locally, I think is, is, is a really good avenue to get people involved and to get people actually thinking more about the broader picture of not just this tree that's sitting on a bench in a courtyard that they see for three minutes as they're walking through you know yeah well i think chris you tell me when all right well let me uh let me talk to the powers that be you do what you do i'll do what i do and then let's see let's see where it all goes and we'll reconvene i uh, I like that (laughs) yeah yeah i'll reach back out and we'll uh yeah once we get some information we can we can uh see where we're at and i think it's uh I love, I love the idea of the collaboration. I think, again, it would be, it would be really fun, first of all. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and secondly, cool. I think, it, I think it could have a good impact and I think it could be like this thing that really kicks off this kind of new direction and branding and, and thing that I'm trying to do there. Um, a lot of this is within my brain and, and, and I've broached the subject with my boss, but there are things that would need to go further than that. So that's kind of the next step for me and reaching out to, you know, if you're thinking, you know, I, I like that you're excited about the bog because I don't think people, um, I love, I, I, and, and before I was here and before I found this Volo bog, I can't say that I was certainly that 
much of a, a bog aficionado, but it is one of my coolest, one of my favorite places around here. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that using that even as our, as our subject, I think would be super excited. I was glad that you were, that you were jazzed about that because it's cool. that has a lot of great species that have a lot of character yeah. and, um, and they are like, like you said, they're carbon sinks, they're filters, they do so many different things for the environment. Um, there was uh, I'll, one more thing. That, uh, I know you're trying to wrap up, but there was this. There's a sign on this bog where they found, you know, of course the water is super acidic, and so it preserves a lot of things. And there was these people who used to live in the bog, and they found these bodies that like someone had, and it was like totally preserved and pickled because of the acidity of the water. It's so much tannins and so much going on in there. So there's like all these crazy other layers of, of fun stuff and unique stuff that um, kind of comes along with that. But the um, I'm really fascinated by that ecosystem. And yeah. I think that it's, I think it's um, a valuable uh, ecosystem. And I think that we, you know, I think that would be, and it has, like I said, cool material material that is acquirable, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, not even from there, but stuff that could be achieved and, and gotten at a good stage, you know, that has character that, that really conveys what we want to do versus having just like a tiny little seedling or something, you know, like, yeah. get yeah, a, yeah, you yeah. know, get, get material that is worthy of the project. And, and I think in this case that, that um, the species that are there are certainly available, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so, um, so that's exciting. I'm really excited about that. So I will, uh, I'll do some, some stuff over here and when we'll, I'll reach out to your team at some point and kind of share what I've got going on. And then, um, we could start to, uh, make some plans for the future and, and putting something together. So I think this is, I think this would be amazing. Boom. I love it. I love it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for circling back with me. This is good. Yeah. This is very thanks good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now yeah. let's keep it going. I think it's really positive and I'm really excited about it. So uh, I'm super, awesome. I'm super appreciative. You were receptive and uh, I think it could be the beginning of something very special. Yeah, me too. This is, this is, this will be fun. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Appreciate you, Chris. Bye. Bye.